Welcome back to the Dirt Talk podcast, episode 68. Today we have the good old English earth mover. If you follow him on Instagram, you'll know that this guy does some pretty wild stuff and runs some pretty big old gear in Australia. His name's Michael. Uh, we forgot to get his last name. Sorry, Michael. I we probably should have got your last name before recording this, but if you look him up on Instagram at the English Earth Mover, you'll see that uh, it's it's he lives a pretty amazing life. Um, right now, he's doing fly in, fly out for a very large mining company. So he lives in the city. He flies into the mine, works a week, flies home, and that's the schedule. Um, so we get in all sorts of stuff from scale models to operating big gear to immigration policy. This was a fun one. I'd been looking forward to this for a while now. So let's get to it. Enjoy. You're not from Australia, are you? Nah, nah. So I'm from the UK, from England. And uh, yeah, I come over here on my own uh, in middle of 2012. How old were you then? And so I was knocking on 28 years old. Okay. Uh, and uh, Australia has this sort of temporary working visa policy where you can obtain a visa from yeah most countries from the from the world. You know, U.S., Canada, whatever, Europe, and you can go to Australia and work for one year, temporary for anyone, travel around, blah blah blah, and. Uh, it's just a it's just a quick visa. It's mainly for you know, backpackers, for travellers, people travelling around Australia, and they can work in different areas, and then you know, then uh, return home. It's basically like a working holiday as such. So I had one of those visas, which enabled me to come over. And the cutoff point for them, they sort of cut off when you. It used to be when you when you turn thirty. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so when I was like, obviously I was coming up to twenty eight, and in, in the UK, and um, I was thinking, well, if I don't pull my finger out, that this this visa, which is available to me, will expire, and that, that'll be the end of it, really. So, yeah, I was, um, yeah, just had to turn things around and sort of make that big decision to come over uh, again, because I originally come over um, back in two thousand and um, seven. Why, so why go to Australia? That's, I mean, it's, it's quite a ways away. It is. Uh, it's as far as you could probably get from the UK. But, yeah. I mean, as you're aware, I mean, UK and Australia have that sort of Commonwealth ties. Yeah. Um, uh, to Australia, to a lot of people from the UK and Ireland, um, you know, it's just um, paradise, a different world as such. You know, the weather is a complete contrast to what we're uh, we have over there and um, it's kind of a very similar sort of culture, you know, over here. Um, so going to Australia is just, it's just a big adventure for a lot of people from the UK and Ireland and Europe, you know, to um, come over here and, and um, try just a different way of working, a different way of life. And just obviously is a contrast in scenery and weather, you know, um, just a world away. So, was there was there so, like a, a life event where you're like, man, I'm just gonna go try something totally new, or it was just like curiosity, like what what even prompts um, you to move half row, halfway around the world? Yeah, well, I, it all started when I was in because I went to when I left high school, and then when I left high school, I went to um, went to art college for two years, and I got like a 
I don't know how the colleges and universities all sort of work in the US, but you have to go to you have to go to like a college over here before you're allowed to get into university. You have to get some sort of um, qualification to then ste- like a stepping stone. So okay. I went to art college and I done a two year um, national diploma in the UK for graphic design. Really? And then give me the step. Yeah, so that's what I done. So when I was in when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to join the army. Then I was pretty good at drawing, and huh. so my sort of parents sort of said, well, you know, you're good at drawing. How about you go to art college and, you know, try that for a couple of years? So I went there. Is that right? Done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've done my, done my two-year national diploma in graphic design, and that obviously gave me the stepping stone then to go to uni. So I then went to university, and I've done a three-year um, graphic design Bachelor of Honours degree in wow. Cardiff in, in Wales. Huh. Which is not too far from where I live, you know, about you know, an hour and a half, two hours away. So, um, yeah, I've done that for three years. And then, you know, I graduated, you know, done the whole through that and there. And was uh, lumbered with all this debt from university. And, um, you know, some other people had been to been to Australia on sort of gap years between the second and third year of university. And, and an ex-girlfriend of mine did as well. And I always thought... Um, Wow, you know, I'd love to go there, and before I settle into potentially a you know a, a career in uh, in this industry of you know design or or uh, as a sort of junior designer or something, you know, I just didn't know whether where sort of that qualification would take me. So um, yeah, I graduated from university in about May two thousand and seven, no, two thousand six, sorry, and. Um, just done some labor and work again near home um, throughout that summer. Um, actually putting up marquees for weddings and whatever. You but, um, wow. And yeah, yeah, then just sort of saved up my money all that year. Then, then um, I live in a very rural area, so there's not any like junior designers or web web design or whatever, any sort of that sort of uh, businesses going on in my area. You know, it's a very rural farming agricultural area so um so yeah packed my bags and off i went to australia on my own backpacking um in uh yeah november 2006 so i've done i've done a year here then and at the time of my life you know start over in sydney went all the way up to the top and um when i was over here then i um obviously as a broke backpacker i needed money to get beer, buy a car, and I ended up working on all these construction sites um, across the eastern coast of Australia, just as a labourer. Um, yeah, back then, I didn't have a, obviously, I didn't have a clue about construction or anything, um, but I was a hard worker, I was a you know, strong, strong guy, so I didn't mind a bit of hard work, so shovel, rake, Jackhammer, you name it, I didn't care. It was as long as money rolling in and I could go on the next adventure to, you know, go backpacking, camping out to somewhere or skydiving, whatever, I didn't care. As long as the money was rolling in, it was funded the next part of my trip for that year. So, and, um, like, so you hadn't worked construction until you went to Australia? Pretty much. I mean, I'd done the whole, I'd done, I was like a brickies laborer, you know, mixing up yeah. cement back in the UK during the odd holiday between university and college, but yeah. that's it. That's it, really. Not, not on a, any sort of large scale, but I worked on some pretty big projects way back then in 2007, you know, and 
Um, yes, work on some big uh, uh, sewer jobs and drainage jobs. And um, then I got a job at one stage laying asphalt and I was on the road <laughs> with a road crew on the back of a paver. And yeah, I was just, it was just all an adventure, and I was taking photos the whole time because I was, you know, backpacking, traveling. So I thought oh, I'd take some photos of what I was doing over here, about all the way back then. And um, yeah, we done like big road trips from the you know, eastern side way over to the west, and whatever. You had an awesome time. So that was just the one year, and that visa expired then in um, November two thousand and eight. Um, no, November 2007, get all my dates mixed up here. And then I come home, I was broke. The only thing I had to my name was a lot of Australian surf shorts and <laughs> singlets and whatever. And obviously it's the winter of the UK. Yeah. And um, I'd been away after graduation, you know, for a year and a half. And I had just lost zero, all interest in graphic design and huh. any sort of computer-based work. My Apple Mac was under my bed in my bedroom, just covered in cobwebs, and and I was just like, God, you know what's happened? You know, it's just uh, just a fast-paced year and sunshine, loads of adventures, and you know, done all these things, and I'm back in the UK, then broke, didn't know what I was going to do with my career, um, and just lost all interest in it as well. But in the meantime, before I come home, my dad had um, contacted a couple of small little earth moving and civil contractors in the area and was just like, look, I've got my son of mine's out in Australia and he's, he'll be back soon and uh, he's looking for work. Um, you got anything for him? And they're like, oh, yeah, there's a little bit happening, but, you know, it's coming up to Christmas, but, yeah, we could find him something. So I'd start in with that then, start with a local contractor. And um, the same thing, you know, I mean, I started, on the, started with them and I was just a laborer. I was just driving little open dump trucks, which they have in the UK. And um, I was on a shovel, just on the rake, you know, laying pipes and just, just laboring. And back then, I, I didn't see a career in construction. I didn't really enjoy it that much. But, you know, there was money was rolling in. So I was happy, you know. I could at least go out with my friends on the weekend from home and get on the beers, you know. <laughs> what did your... What did so, your dad do for work? Um, so my dad for years has been um, like a mechanic for like a water well for like a drilling company. Okay. And then a few years ago, he chuckled that in and then he bought his own tipper trucks. So he's just got, he had his own sort of fleet of tipper trucks. He's just got the one now. He finds that easier with just one truck. Yeah. So he sort of subcontracts out to local Civil contractors, earth moving contractors, just moving stone and dirt, and and um, he, he's happy as Larry doing that. Um, there's no hassle, so gotcha. he's just yeah, he loves it. Okay, but um, so that's what he's up to. Huh. But so you grew up, so yeah, you grew he, he up around it. it a little bit. Okay. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, um, years ago when I used to go with my dad to work with him on like a Saturday morning, and yeah, there was a lot of drilling rigs there, and there was a lot of machinery and little mini diggers and what have you, and um, yeah, we seem to uh, be involved, you know, be around machinery a lot. Mm. Um, where I grew up in the countryside of Herefordshire in the UK, which is very rural, rural. Yeah, there's just a lot of farms, a lot of forests, 
Um, so there's just a lot. There's a lot of machinery around, you know, working in the forest. And as a youngster, I used to go watch them logging, and cutting in tracks with diggers and what have you, and just used to watch all that. I did take a bit of an interest in all that, and, uh, and just mainly farm machinery, really. Yeah. There wasn't that much earth moving equipment around my area, but my mum tells me that when I was a youngster, she um, she used to take me to little construction sites around a small town we used to live in, and I used to be up against the railings there, just like gleaming through. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, checking out all the machinery. So, um, but yeah, as a family, we we know. We didn't have any sort of construction background in the family. I mean, my uncle had a, a had a digger, but that was about it, really. Gotcha. Um, but um, okay. So yeah, um, so going back to working for the small civil contractor and um, working for them for about a year, and then it's, something sort of changed in me. Uh, I it went from a job where it was just money. You know, I didn't care what I was doing. I didn't care about the job. I wasn't big headed. I wasn't like, oh, I'm not doing that. I didn't care if I was laying concrete or covered in mud or what have you. You know, in, in the pouring rain, driving a dump truck with no cab on. Yeah, I, I didn't mind. It was just, just money coming in and I was going to figure out what I was going to do later. But that time later never come. And over a certain period of time, I actually really started enjoying what I was doing in, in this civil contractor, you know, becoming a part of a team with a crew and just having a good laugh with them. And uh, I figured, well, yeah, it's just, this is pretty good, actually. And obviously they were giving me a chance on the little diggers and getting more experience on the equipment. And, and um, yeah, I figured, well, I can't see myself ever going back to trying to get a junior designer position yeah. with my, you know, all my uh, qualifications I gained. So, so yeah, I just sort of stuck with that, and I ended up working for that contractor then for four and a half years. Yeah, and that's that's back in Britain. That is still in the UK. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. at the end of that four and a half years, um, yeah, it was fully fledged operating machine full time on um, excavators and um, even dozers. Um, that contractor who I was working for eventually bought a little D six at some stage and. None of us on the company knew how to operate it, and they, I remember he got it, and uh, it was me and another another mate of mine. He was like, "Oh, you guys keep talking about these bulldozers. Well, I've got one, and just go out to the paddock out there and figure out what to do with it." Yeah. That's what we did. <laughs> um, so, so it's so it's a few years out there, and then you end up back in Australia. Yeah. So, obviously, I've. I'd been in UK and I, I was been there for four and a half years. And during that time, then I, I gained a lot of experience and I was operating excavators full time. We were doing roads, we were doing drainage, we were digging out ponds for farms, we were doing a whole range of stuff. I was operating the bulldozer as well, and I wanted a little bit more money, and there was not much more money available in my area. The area I was living in didn't really pay that well. It's just that's just the way it is. Just that some areas just just the money doesn't seem to go up, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was just like, oh and I was getting a little bit more responsibility, which was yeah, it was just fine, you know. sometimes I'd have jobs where 
um, I was given the whole reign of it. And, you know, I'd have a couple of guys working sort of under me for, for a little while while I would sort of delegate how we're going to do this part of the drainage and how we're going to do this part. And that was all good. But, you know, there was no more sort of money available. And I was just getting a little bit itchy feet thinking, ah, oh, you know, what do I do, you know? This is do I go to a different contractor in the area, but I think they pay much more anyway. So I was saying to my mum, having a chat to my mum about it, she was like, What you need to do is get back to Australia again. And I was like, Yes, pretty good idea actually. And um mm. um yeah, I was still available to get a, a second working visa because I had obviously taken the first one straight after graduation when I'd done the back um, backpacking visa one so I thought well let's just see we see if I can get this second one so I applied online and I got this second visa and um, I thought wow it's, that's, it's real so better start selling all my possessions and come out here again and so yeah I had a you know at that time I had quad bikes I had a couple of cars so I you know, sold them all on eBay I pretty much sold everything I had um, to come out here for the second time round in, in 2012. I think the only thing I've got in my possession still is my shotgun. <laughs> That's just left at home. <laughs> my brother's got that now. Um, but um, yes, I come out, but I assume I would only be out here for one year because that's all the visa um, qualifies you for. It's just a one-year visa. Yeah. So in my my mind was, look, I'm going to go to Australia and I just want to chase some big dirt. I want to get on some big projects because they none of those big earth moving projects were in my local area back in Herefordshire. Mm -hmm. I wanted to operate some big equipment. And I was quite happy just to see some big equipment working and maybe work alongside it and just, just, it, just experience it all. You know, I was, after four and a half years in the UK, I, I was, you know, I was hungry for, you know, big money, big dirt, big equipment, and just just wanted to experience that for one year. So, um, yeah, over I came. I sold everything I had, so I had nothing to my name, and come on over on my own again. And yeah, come straight to Perth this time because um, I knew that's where all the mining work was sort of kicking off up north. And um, but I didn't have a clue how to get into it, or I knew I had no experience in that aspect of work but what the hell I thought there's going to be a lot of civil work around Perth so so yeah I come on over and um, yeah just things went from there went, and um, I've been here ever since <laughs> well, so I guess and to explain the, the visa process it, and a visa for people that I guess don't understand it is it's it's literally permission to go to another country to work there right you can't just like I can't just go to Britain and then just go get a job. I need to have permission from the government to be able to do that. Yeah, correct. It's and the visa thing is so complicated. Yeah, um, it's the same if I wanted to work in the US. Which at the same time, before I come to Australia, the second time around, I wanted to go to Canada. I went to a big employment expo, mm. and they had like a booth there for Canada, and they had a booth there for Australia and whatever. And I talked to someone about you know going up to oil sands or whatever you and it just seemed a little bit complicated to go to Canada because you needed to get an employer before you landed before they let you in the country whereas Australia they're like come on over get your employer when you're here you know what I mean so and that was the same with the USA 
I think you needed an employer before um, you arrived in the country. So it just made things complicated. Whereas Australia was just like, look, this is just a temporary thing. You're only here for one year. So you how, figure it out. So how did you find out about mining in general? Um, I didn't really, not until I got here. Oh, okay. Um, uh. Yeah, I didn't really have a clue about anything about to do with mining or what they were mining. I was really clueless, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I, I just assumed because I've, yeah, I haven't worked in mining or big equipment in the UK, so I figured, well, they're not going to give me a go when they hear that type of work. So get that out of your head and just go over there for the for the fun of it and just try and get on some big jobs around and then uh, be done with it, really. But so what happened with the visa thing was it was a temporary visa, but in the last sort of two months of me being here, uh, an employer who I was working for, they were able to sponsor me on like a four-year mm. visa program. Okay. That got, yeah, that got granted on like the, like the 11th hour, if you call it, like so big, like I had a month to go. So that then gave me another four years in Australia. So that's why I'm still here. I I'm got sponsored by this employer as a drainer uh, because it's that's the thing with the sponsorships. You need to be sponsored by a trade which is deemed to be in you know, basically a, a trade with which Australian immigration department see which is lacking, you know, like see so your typical is like doctors, nurses, yeah. whereas excavator operator is not on that list, you know, they don't count operators as a, as a skilled trade or a trade which is sort of in need to the Australian economy. So anything loosely, closely related to that is a drainer, which is basically a pipe layer. Okay. So I was sponsored, yeah, sponsored oh. as, a, as a drainer. And that's the only sort of route an operator can get to be Okay. Sponsored in Australia. I thought you were saying trainer. You're saying drainer. Yeah. I, yeah. So that's what they that's what they call it over here. Yeah. Okay. And I I I I had somewhat researched that process before because I was I don't know for whatever reason in college I was thinking about trying to go to New Zealand for a while, and so yeah. I was I was fortunately you know I I went and got an engineering degree, a construction engineering degree, and that was one of the sought after trades in New Zealand because after the earthquake, everything was leveled and they needed engineers to come over there and help build stuff. And, and so I was yeah. like, Oh, score. I studied the right thing. I can get in New Zealand. Obviously I never went to New Zealand, but it's funny how different jobs are prioritized over others. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, oh, okay. Um, I, I got sponsored as that. And then obviously I, <clears throat> I had all this drainage experience in the UK. So, that was on like my resume, and then that's what my employer here in Australia then submitted to me me to be sponsored as as a drainer. But once that was through, then I've done a little bit of drainage with them, but spent quite a lot of time on machines. So, um, are you? Do you have permanent status, or what? Like, what's your visa status now? No, yeah, so, yeah. It's it's just been a uh, complete mission to be honest with you to stay here permanently. So with that first employer, obviously when you're sponsored by an employer, you can't work for anyone else. You're tied to them. 
Yeah. Um, if they have no work on or they reduce the amount of hours, you've got to sort of bite it on the tongue and go with the flow because you're here under their sort of banner. You're uh, here under their okay. wing as such. So that's what happened with my first employer. They were a, a bulk earthwork and mining contractor. And after working for them for um, three and a half years, they went bankrupt. And wow. uh, they went bankrupt in December 2000 and when was it, God? Trying to think now. I think they went bankrupt in 2016. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I'd been here for that time. And the, the, the rules are when an employer goes bankrupt, you're, you're then given three months to find a new employer to sponsor you, and then you can stay in the country for the duration of that period. So... I pretty much had six months left because it was a four-year visa and I'd been working there for three and a half. So, and then they went bankrupt. So then I had, a, I had six months left under another employer, which I was able to find, fortunately, just by pure chance. Um, once those six months were up, then that new employer then were able to renew um, a second sponsorship visa so then I had another four years to go then wow um, yeah so it's, I mean and those visas aren't cheap you know uh, there's yeah. a couple of grand here and here and there to apply for them and it basically the set, you're living in limbo if they were going to get granted especially with the second time I was on a bridging visa for 11 months and um, I, I was waiting for an email any day saying look it's been uh, unsuccessful and that's it pack your bags and leave the country but yeah with that second employer after that 11 months then that's when the stop started then for the four years so it's yeah it's been a complete mission um but i'm almost a permanent resident now i can almost reveal because my partner who i met here she's australian and we've gone through the partner visa process so where we've applied for my permanent residency, not tied to an employer. We've basically just done it, you know, as, as a couple. Wow. Um, so the first part of that got granted two years ago. We're just waiting for the second part to be granted. It should, it should just come through any day now, which is quite frustrating, even though I've been telling everyone I know now recently, going, oh, have you got PR yet? I'm just like, no, it hasn't come through. You just check in. You just check your immigration account. It's just like pending. But the first part of it's been granted. That's um, incredible. Which, huh. yeah, it's uh, it's it's so so annoying. Um, uh, I tell you what, I, I, back in um, twenty sixteen, obviously when that first employer went bankrupt on me, and it was obviously Christmas time, and I was well, I was up shit creek without a paddle, really. And I was like, bloody hell, I'm going to get a job. For one, it's Christmas time. No one's taking anyone on. Yeah. Number two, I'm a foreigner trying to get a visa. So a lot of employers are just like, nah, it's too much hassle with visas. Blah, blah, blah. We don't want to know, mate. So, yeah, it was it was a complete nightmare to um, all these visas. So I, back then I thought, right, I'm going to do an independent visa. So I got a Australian 
drainage or like a pipeline qualification. That cost me three grand. I had to get that done. And then I was going to apply to immigration in, independently as, as a skilled pipe layer on my own, not tied to an employer. Yeah. So they were like, yep, yeah, that's fine. You've got the qualification. Now you just need to do an English test. And um, I failed this freaking English test four times. What? And that cost me, yeah, that what, cost me like 1500 bucks. What is an English so test? The English test, it's, uh, yeah, I know. Well, it's crazy, right? But, you speak English. Um, <laughs> yeah, speak English from, Engl- from England <laughs> and went to university as well. But you need to prove at for immigration that you are fluent in English, in English language, and it's a four part exam. What? Um, and it's basically like a university level English exam. So the first part is you're like in a big exam hall, and they just give you a random question, and you have to argue for and against for something. I, I wish, I wish I could provide an example now to you to what they ask you, but some rubbish. Yeah. So then, obviously, you write like you have to write a big essay, and then it's pens down, and that's that first part of the exam over. Next then is the listening exam, and I remember they were playing out something like there was a someone ordering a ski holiday at a resort, and you have to sort of fill in the gaps on the piece of paper, you know, how many people are going, blah, blah, blah. And, the, and then the speaking gets faster and faster and you've got to listen to it and fill in the gaps. Yeah, so that's the listening part of it. Um, yeah, and then you go, that's in, obviously, you know, pens down, that's all finished. And a bit later on then, they bring, it's a um, reading exam. So there was all these essays and you have to sort of skim read an essay and the next page then there'll be loads of questions in relation to the previous um, piece of writing, I remember there was a um, one of the exams I done. It was a it's a piece of writing on like goats <laughs> and goats living in the mountains, and you had to then next page. Then it was like how many goats and what? I'm just yeah, it's fucking <laughs> it's crazy. And then the fourth part of the exam is mm. speaking. You you go into a private room with an examiner. And they ask you all these weird questions about who you admire and what's this and what's that. And yeah. And then a couple of weeks later, you get a letter in the mail saying, Congratulations, you failed. And, and they you, don't give you, you, you any feedback. Four times. Four times. About four times. And that, and that oh. cost me, say, $1,500 to attempt those, that exam. <laughs> um, I wasn't getting anywhere. I, I was passing everything. You know, flying colors apart from the writing. The writing was just half a point off what what I was required to get. I was required to get sevens, and I kept getting six point fives in the writings. All the all the others were like eights and nines, whatever. Um, So that was really frustrating. And I'm, you know, I've got a bit of dyslexia, Um, so I'm not too flash on my spelling. Um, That's my dyslexia. I mean, I'm. Some words I just I can I'll write them out and in my mind they they are correct but I mean there's a letter a jar here or there so yeah there's a few things that's that I had a few problems with spelling but they don't take that into consideration for the exam you know so so that was really frustrating I couldn't get anywhere I couldn't pass this freaking English test um, I was sort of stuck in the water. 
So that was really depressing all those years back. So, um, but doesn't, during this time, well, doesn't sorry, doesn't mining on. like don't they need people out there, or is hiring not a big deal, not a big problem? Oh, they're crying out for people. That's what but I thought. It's but it's the immigration department. We're just like, no, we don't need operators. We don't, you know, they deem deem like as an operator or as a low skill set and. Wow. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, they're crying out for people to work here, but they, to get here from in, from international countries is just a complete minefield. Mm. Um, and yeah, going back, I went to a, like I say, I went to an employment expo in the UK way back in you know two thousand and five or whatever before I come over, and I went to this um, booth the Australian immigration booth and I, I just said, look, I operate machinery here in the UK and I'd love to go to Australia. And she just looked me up and down and was just like, oh, oh no, we can get anyone to do your job. That's just a low-skilled job, I'm afraid. And yeah, and I, you don't really have much chance again there. I'd, like, yeah, I'd love, to, love to meet that woman again one day and be like, hey, yeah, still here. Yeah. <laughs> Making okay. good money. But yeah, yeah, no, it was, yeah, so that's 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 what you're up against, really. It's what the immigration department deem is um, skilled and unskilled, and they don't recognise any form of operating or or anything to do with that as as a as an actual trade as such. So a trade to them, you know, as a carpenter or a doctor or whatever. You so yeah, that's it's just it's just wacky. So you you get into mining, and you've sp- You've spent a lot of time at a lot of different mines. I feel like you've, like every time I go online, like your pictures, the pictures are, they're just from all over the damn place. Yeah. So I was quite fortunate back, like I, I, when I was first coming for that first year and, and, um, I got a job with a large bulk of works, a mining contractor and, that was the one that went bankrupt. And I mean, they had jobs all over the place. So we were going around to different, different mines, you know, doing cutbacks or stripping gravel or, um, even mining like bauxite and what have you, um, which is like a, a real hard coffee rock used for aluminium. Mm. Um, so I've been fortunate to work on various different jobs as, as a contractor, uh, around the place really. And then with my second employer who sponsored me, they were focused on more civil type of uh, work. So not the bulk work, but they were focused on all the trimming and all the precision works in relation to, but they also done work on mine sites. So um, like a lot of mine sites across Australia are going through major expansions and they just get contractors in to build new haul roads or infrastructure or you name it. It's all done by contractors. So yeah. um, the mi- the miners themselves, they just want to focus on moving dirt. That's what they do best. So they don't really want to get involved in building telling stands or or building new roads or haul roads or clearing. So there's, there's, just, um, there's a lot of contractors out there taking up all that work. Yeah, there's a lot more contracting in the mining world in Australia than in the United States. 
Um, yeah, and I think yeah. it's I think it's a better model. But in the United States, it's it there, there is a lot of contracting, but there it's a lot more rare. It seems like Australia. I mean, just it should, it seems like there are so many mining contractors out there. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. so many contractors. Yeah, um, yeah, and and uh, going to the type of work too. It seems like like you especially have done a lot of like um, stormwater like flood management work, huh? Yeah. So, um, which is, which is a lot, I get a lot of comments and questions on those yeah. and, um, cause we work in like a very arid and dry climate in some of those iron ore mines in Western Australia and everyone's just like, why are you building all that? You know, that's, that's, this looks as dry as a bone up there. It's never going to rain, but it's Australia has this, you know, very well, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's unique weather, but it's very unpredictable at times. And you you just got to plan for the worst, I guess. And in especially in the northern, northwest, they have they have basically two seasons per year. It's basically the wet and the dry season. And when the wet season, you can get a cyclone come through and just dump, you know, 100, 150 mil of rain. And this rain has just got to, find somewhere to go and all these ancient creeks and riverbeds just flood and um, this water can just wreak havoc on all these mine sites. So mm. um, it's basically sort of a condition with the mines department for those mines to expand. They need to allow for what's going to happen if there's going to be a major flood. What are you going to do with this water? Where are you going to guide it to? So to keep their operations sort of Ticking over, they've got to plan for all these dry creeks if they're going to flood, and what's where this water going to go. So, um, yeah, I've been involved in a few of those projects now, where we've sort of been building these big, big flood bunds. In the, seems like in the middle of nowhere, but you know, it could just next year or two years time, they could have a massive rain rain event where a big cyclone can come through, and and yeah, then, then it's all worth it then. Yeah, they, they look and they look very pretty. I mean, and like some of the work you do is pretty incredible. Just how nice it looks after after you're done with it. Yeah, um, some of those projects I've worked on, we the spec on them is just ridiculous. Like they were chasing like the the as we call it in Australia and UK, like the batters, or you call it in US the slope work. But yep. they were chasing like the slope the slope work to be trimmed within a tolerance of say, you know, they were, they were chasing like 30 mil with that. And wow. um, it was just like, this is a mine site. No one's going to see it. Why has it got to be ridiculously flash, you know? And, but yeah, it was <laughs> like some of the work we've done up there, which no one will ever see again is, is tidier and, and more slick than some of the road projects we've done. Yeah. You know, in, in, in the city. It's, um, yeah, some of the spec up there, you're just shaking your head thinking, what, why, why is this got to be trimmed, you know, to this spec, you know, it's well, crazy. But it looks, that's, what, that's what they want and that's what they're paying for. It's just, yeah, so you just got to go with what the client wants sometimes. How, these, these big mining companies, how picky are they? Are they pretty particular? And I know safety is extraordinarily strict. Um. In picky in regards to what? Like just, um, just very particular. Employees or no, just contractors like, or just, just a lot of rules and 
and <clears throat> they're kind of by the book, like you do it our way. Like what, what's it like working yeah. for these companies? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they're pretty strict on a lot of rules, you know, um, just going down to your personal protective stuff. I mean, everyone needs to wear gloves half the time. Um, it's compulsory to wear sunglasses, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. And yeah, they're, they're pretty particular on, um, you got to have this little booklet on you called a take five booklet. I don't know if you guys use them over there in the States, but it's basically like a little hand, that little check box and sort of write out a task in the box in, in your booklet. And you sort of tick a few boxes of if it's safe, if I understand what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And on the back page then, you sort of jot a few things in there about controls in place of how you're going to, you know, be safe on that particular task. So they're, they, you know, they, they're really pushing those and uh, they, they require at least sometimes some jobs I've been on, they require a minimum of three per day to be handed in per wow. employee. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it sometimes turns into a big paper chair, paper trail, and it's just it's just crazy at times. So doing one of those is more important than actual progress on the job site at times. If you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and you're writing in the same shit every day, <laughs> but they don't care as long as they get a uh, like a shoebox full of those little take fives, and that meets their target, and everyone's happy. You know what I mean? Doesn't matter if the project's falling behind, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it, I do get. I'm, I'm not. I'm not the only one, but a lot of us get so annoyed by some of that stuff. It's that just gets drummed into you so much. Yeah, as if you can't think for yourself. You just got to write out these little bits of paper and sign on to this job hazard sheet and JSAs and what have you. Yeah. I've always, I um, found it so funny, uh, Australian machines with all the railing all over them. And yeah. Like, yeah, we have railing right here, yeah. but holy smokes, you guys put it on everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's crazy. And certain sites require more railings than others. So, yeah. yeah, I even see, I remember seeing a little D6 and it had four railings around it. It was like <laughs> ridiculous. Um, <laughs> It's, yeah, so, I mean, I, I get a lot of comments, sometimes get comments like, oh, why are you wearing, why have you got those stupid railings on? It's just like, the, if you're, because if you're, there's so many contractors, obviously, as we've touched on, and from what I gather, you know, when the mine, when the mines, when you, when you obviously get in with a mining contract, or basically a, a sub, you're a subcontractor to a primary contractor at a mine. Yeah they stipulate that the machine must have all these different um, safety um, points uh, or or additional controls added to the machine. Number one is obviously those railings and they usually need to be painted in a certain shade of yellow at times, which is crazy. I've seen that. And like the yellow stickers all over them too. Yeah, so they have, number one, they used to have those, they used to have those fall from height railings from all on the upper structure of an excavator or, you know, on some of the dozers, they usually have them. It's, it's a law that on the dozers is for someone in the office has, has figured, oh, hang on, how is this guy going to clean his back window without falling off? So they're like, right, we need to put all these railings on it. Yeah. So that's what they're basically for. Or, you know, how is the guy going to change the globe in the flashing light without 
potentially fallen off. So yeah, they've got to have railings. So yeah, they've got to have these railings on. Um, number two, they've got to have big plant identification numbers in high vis numbers. Yeah. Um, uh, also, they've got to have the stripes, high reflective stripe along the whole foot, sort of footprint of the of the machine. So that's on the boom, on the dipper arm, or way along the side of the excavator or front of the dozer, basically all over. So they've got to have those. Then, um, yeah, they've got to have like e stops and like lockout tag points. So, got to have those. Um, yeah, there's, there's just they're like the main things. They, the machine has to be equipped with before it's even considered to be allowed through the gates of a of a major mine to work. Yeah. Gosh. Now you, you you've run a pretty wide assortment of equipment and some really really big stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been very fortunate in my career. Um very lucky and I'm appreciative of what I've been able to operate in in my time. Like it's probably I've only probably been on the levers now, say thirteen years or so, and I've run everything, you know, yeah. dig, uh, graders, loaders, diggers, dozers, you name it. And um, so I've been very lucky in that time. Um, when I come over here in 2012, you know, obviously I left the UK and I was on a D6 occasionally in the UK, and I just wanted to see a D11 working like in the UK I think there's only two D11s in the whole of the UK yeah yeah <laughs> and so I was just like look I want to you know I'm a little D6 I want to see a D11 if I get to operate it that'd be freaking awesome but I thought well that's never going to happen but within that first year uh, when I started working for that um, bulk earthworks and mining contractor um, they had three D11s and um, yeah, within within that year of of landing in Australia, I was on the seat of a D11 after uh, ten months. Wow! So that was that, that was awesome to do. So I was before I got that sponsorship to stay for another four years. I was you know potentially leaving the country in June, and I was like, well, I've come here for one year. I've been on some big projects. I'm on a D11. You know, that's it ticked off all these boxes, it's head back to the UK. But then I got that sponsorship and I was able to stay for a fair four years and then on on again from then another four years. But so yeah, I've been lucky to be on some been on some big gear. And um yeah, I'm just uh been loving it ever since. And at this current point in time, um I'm now working for one of Australia's largest mining companies direct for them so now I'm on even bigger stuff again so and I've been working for them now for probably let me think probably say nine nine or ten months now oh so you're working you're working for the mining company you're not with a contractor yeah working direct for the mining miner yeah oh wow uh, yeah oh and what kind so, of what kind of mine now, is it is it iron or what it's iron ore, yeah. Huh. So that's that's why I'm on this um, cushy, family-friendly roster with them, which is, as we talked about, eight and six. So I'm working direct for them. So, um, yeah, which is brilliant. So um, a lot of big gear. 
I mean, unfortunately, we aren't using D11s. We're just using D10s for doses. Bummer. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I was expecting D11s, but no, they're like, no, we've standardized on D10s. Um, yeah, well, they're, they're in iron ore mining, there's not much slot dosing. There's not much bulk pushing to doing. So your, your D10 is your cleanup machine. Yeah. And it's um, either on floor cleanup for the excavator or it's on a waste dump or it's doing road projects around the mine. So they just standardize on D10s, uh, which is cool. But um, yeah, I assumed there was D11s there. <laughs> and the it's interesting because these mines are out in the middle of like nowhere. And so it's fly in, mm. fly out. So you're flying out to the mine every week, right? And you live out there. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So um, the Pilbara region, which is like sort of a shire or a region of Western Australia where all these iron ore mines are, is so remote. There's literally nothing up there. And all of these mines, they pretty much, a vast majority of them have their own private airstrip. And obviously they all then have their own private accommodation village to host all their workers for their duration that they're there. So I've worked on a variety of these mines where you fly up to their airstrip and um, yeah, you just basically stay on site for their, for that duration and then you fly back to um, Perth then. Typical flight time is um, say one hour 30. Hmm. Um, and, you know, there's large planes as well. We're not talking like a little Cessna with, you know, <laughs> two seats. Um, it, it, they're big, big planes and they're chock-a-block full of workers, uh, either, either contractors or direct with the mine are all on the same flight usually. Wow. And, and um, are there, those there, there well, since, sorry, you've been at, since you've been at different mines, are some mines like pretty shitty to stay at? Whereas other mines are like, yeah, this is the place to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, and a lot of those big mines now have upgraded all their villages to attract workers because, you know, where it gets around, like that place is a shit hole. Uh, that food is rubbish there. Yeah. So, um, the facilities in these villages is is pretty top notch. Um, I would say now, um, the one I'm at now, for example, has just like a massive gym. Like the gym is bigger than what's locally to me down in Perth. You know what I mean? Uh. Yeah, you got ten like running machines, row machines, loads of weights and whatever. It's just cute, and it's not just a gym, but they they got fitness classes, they got fitness instructors there, so you can join in all these courses. Wow, it's all free, obviously. Was, um, we've also got like a squash court, indoor squash court. Wow. We've got beach volleyball courts. We've got cricket nets. We've got a soccer field. Um, what else is there? There's like outdoor barbecue areas. There's, um, oh, you'd like this. There's a running track around the village, which is under solar lights. That's about, say, two kilometers long. Wow. Um, huh. What else is there? Um, Oh, tennis courts, um, cricket, yeah, cricket nets. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of sporting activities you can do there. So, yeah, they're pretty well equipped. These are oh, obviously a swim pool. Okay. Most of these mines have got a swim pool. That's incredible. So, um, yeah. Was it? Yeah, they're, 
was it you that, oh man, it, it might've it might been a little bit ago, but it was like, I think it was you. You, 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 you like open the door to your, your, your little room at the mine and there's like this big fucking lizard on the wall or something like that. Maybe it was somebody else, but. Oh, no, I don't think that was me. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not a big one. There is a few lizards that sort of get in, but I've never had, there's been a few big ones. They sort of sort of wander around the village. Um, during the day, yeah, and um, I can't think they're I, f- I can't think of their their what they're actually called, but they're just they're just called a bung arrow for some reason. That's their slang, like maybe an Aboriginal slang for them. But yeah. they're pretty big, yeah. They're make maybe like you know up to two meters long. Okay, but the yeah. thing with these, yeah, yeah the thing with these big these yeah these big lizards, um. They've got to know how the village works. So when all the workers go early in the morning or in the evening to night war or night shift, they, they, these lizards come out during those times, you know, during the middle of the day. And they basically like live underneath the, the, uh, the sort of these steel rooms of, you know, these like ships, the, we call them dongers over here, but they're basically like these portable rooms, which are all, you know, concreted in place, but they live underneath there, and they live in the in the open drainage systems. And so, yeah, they just wander wander around the villages during the day. And if you, yeah, if you're not quite there, you're just like, whoa, what the hell is this thing? You know, wow. like when you're just walking around the, yeah. Huh. Are uh, since you're working out in the middle of nowhere, I know you're pushing dirt around this and that. Are snakes ever a problem? Yeah, there's there's. They are loads of signs up because, yeah, the Pilbara region has something like eight of the most venomous snakes in Australia out of ten or something. So eight, yeah. uh, or something like that. There's the ridiculous amount of snakes up there that can kill you in a heartbeat. But in all the time I've worked up there, um, never really encountered them. You mm. get to hear about it on the two-way radio, like, oh well, you know, there's a snake over here, and if that's the case, there's usually every job site I've been on has a trained snake handler and they'll go out and, and get it and relocate it somewhere. Um, wow. But they usually, the snakes and that usually hang out near, near the, where the water carts are up from. We call them the turkey nests. Oh yeah. So I don't know yeah. call them over there. So they usually, sometimes they usually hang around there and like near the pump of the, of the uh, turkey nests. So the water cart operators have uh, usually got a, Watch their step. That's yeah. what I've heard of in the past. That's where the snakes hang out. Uh, <laughs> with with all all the equipment you've run, what's your favorite machine to run? Yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of, I don't know. I'm torn. I can't really pick. I'm torn between a dozer or an excavator. Really. Yeah. Um, it's it varies so much. I don't know. Some days I'm just loving the dozer, but then other days I'm smashing trucks you know, bombing trucks with dirt. You think, I'm just loving the digger, you know? And and working direct for this mining company now, um, I'm employed as a bulldozer and excavator operator. So I'm on both machines throughout the day. I'm not just stuck on a excavator all day loading dump trucks. Um, the, way they, the way they work their working roster is, say, for example, shift starts at 6 a.m., um, I'll be penciled in to operate the excavator first up and then come say 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, I'll get swapped out by 
another operator, and we call it a hot seat. Okay. So the, the excavator still on the bench, and then we'll make it like a little dirt, dirt track down, get out, sort of do, do the old high five, say, oh, you know, bit tough digging here, blah, 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 and the other guy will get straight in, and uh, he'll start swinging. I'll go back to the sort of the crib huts, as we call them, where you sort of have your lunch, lunch break. So I'll go have my 30-minute lunch break or first break. Then from, say, you know, 11, 11-ish onwards, then I'll get on the dozer then. So I'll be on the D10 till about, say, 1 or 2-ish, you know. There's no sort of set time. It's just how, how the sort of the hot seat in works. And then I'll be picked up for my lunch break. I'll have my lunch break. Then I'll go back onto the digger then to the afternoon. Wow. And that, that happens with everyone usually. So, for example, you could be on a dozer first up in the morning. You, you're on the digger for the morning part or from morning till after lunch. Then you're on a dozer for the afternoon. It just chops and changes all day. So there's a lot of variety what we do. And you're not just sort of stuck in one area, stuck at a face, just digging all day. Like you'd be there for a maximum of, say, four four or five hours and you'll be swapped out and you'll have a break and then you'll be in a different area on a dozer or something or or even floor cleanup under that digger usually. So That's pretty cool because you're getting a little yeah, bit of something good, yeah. the whole day. Yeah. What then? These, yeah. These excavators, these are these are big excavators. What are they, like Lieber? Or? Yeah, so we're, we're using Lieber excavators and um, we have uh, six 9400, so they are 350 tons. Yeah, that's a big machine. Uh, so we've got six. Yeah. yeah, we've got six of those swinging. Then we've got five um, 996Bs. So they are even bigger, and they are 670 tons. Wow. So we've got five of them, yeah, and six of the 9400s. Uh, for me, I'm just on the 9400s at the moment. When I get more bit more experience on them about um, they're going to give me a shot of the bigger ones the 996s which in, in a couple of months time we're just a bit short staff at the moment so um, unable to get trained on the bigger ones because um, can't really pull me off the the D10 or the 9400s so yeah but yeah that's that's good yeah that's fantastic now mm, yeah you guess you just started sharing pictures on the internet and it's really turned into something because you've been doing it a while now. I've been, I've been following you for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Um, so I started putting pictures on Instagram way back when it almost sort of started. Um, yeah. we're probably talking say, I don't know. I could probably say 10 years ago, maybe who knows? I don't know when Instagram started, but I only started putting pictures on there because I wanted to share what I was doing and what machines I was operating and all these big jobs I was on in Australia compared to the UK. And I didn't want to flood my personal Facebook account with all these pictures of diggers because I just thought all friends and people who aren't interested in machinery and that, I thought they would just get a bit pissed off and call me a nerd and be just like, God, I don't want to be logging onto Facebook and see his pictures of machinery yeah. again and again and again. So I thought Instagram come about and I was like, well, this is a little channel. I can just do my heavy equipment pictures out here and then keep my Facebook pictures to, you know, just normal, you know, barbecue and nights out pictures or whatever. 
So that's that's why I started on Instagram. And back then, when I first started, I didn't know anything about hashtags and what have you. I was just putting pictures on, and um, you may remember back then. I mean, Instagram didn't have any sort of video features. It was a lot different. I don't think you could edit the photos as well. I think you just had to sort of pick a filter and that was it. I think that's how it worked. I can't remember. Yeah. But it just sort of, over time, it just sort of took off when I was getting all these extra likes and extra followers and then I would sort of log in and it was like, boom, this one's really taken off for some reason. And then another, like a larger account had shared one of my photos and then it just sort of spiraled and tumbled and just kept growing and growing. And I thought, oh, well, people obviously want to see this sort of stuff. Um, you know, there are more dirt nerds out there. There are more people who like equipment. So just kept doing it and doing it. And yeah, it sort of kept growing and growing. Have you had to be a little careful with some of the stuff you share because of the policies with the big minds and all that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've never shared any sort of, uh, how can you call it, fuck-ups. <laughs> yeah. I've never, well, not really. Yeah. Uh, like if there's a truck rollover, I've never bothered to share those. Um, and what a lot of people in Australia do, myself included, is, you know, you'll take some sneaky photos of a job site, but, you know, you won't put them on social media until you've left that particular job site. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. the case with me. I mean, we're, uh, myself and some other guys are sort of in Australia, you know, you're, you're sort of filtering some pictures from a project you were on two years ago because, you know, there's not going to be any, you know, implications if that picture goes live on the net because that job's done and dusted. You've left that project now. They aren't going to have a word of you on the job and be like, what are you doing putting pictures up online? Yeah. So that's what we've sort of done. But I've never, I've never had any sort of issue from it, I don't think. Not to my knowledge, not to my memory. So, I've, yeah, I think I've sort of, yeah, come off lightly because I know some other guys have been pulled aside by their employers and they've, been ha- they've had to basically delete all their account on the spot. Wow. To continue working for that particular employer, yeah. Well, and you, um, and you working directly at the mine now, You, I know you've talked about yeah. this. You don't share anything like that because it's... Yeah, I've rules. decided, you know, a, a good paying job is better than putting a picture up on Instagram, you know? So yeah. I'm a little bit weary of uh, moving forward of doing that, although... Some people I work with and some supervisors would be just like, look, it's fine, you know, just be, you know, respectful. Don't post up anything bad. Um, if it's a nice, cool photo of a sunrise or whatever, and, you know, I think you'd be okay. But I'm just like, nah. I yeah. just, yeah, I, I don't want, but yeah. If that was the case, what some other guys have done now, I've heard of is the, you know, and I have done myself is you download a separate sort of app and you can sort of smudge away different aspects of the photo. So basically you, you know, you're blurring out the company um, name or the plant identification number. So you can sort of, that machine is just a blank machine. It's not sort of, cannot be traced to you know, a particular project with its plant number or, um, 
or a company, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's annoying because what I see and experience now is just draw, draw oh, sorry, <laughs> jaw dropping. But you can't really share any images of that, which is such a shame, you know. Well, it's a bummer because um, like you were talking about before, yeah. the industry needs people and you want to draw as much awareness to it as possible. And if you can't share about it, then no one's going to find out about it. No, I know. Yeah. I know. It's, it's such a shame. And even on like every project I've been on up until this point, they've all had a very strict mobile phone policy and camera policy. And it's just, it's such a shame because like we're just moving dirt. We're not like we haven't got some secret, you know, rocket NASA campaign. All these—it's why is it got to be so hush hush? Why is it got to be so secret? You know, we're just moving dirt with machinery. Yeah, but why is there no photos allowed? You know, I remember I was on a road project here in Perth, and like it's a road going near houses, and the guy there, some safety guy, come up to me, and he was just like phones are banned on this project. You don't have to take any photos. I was like, what? I was like, it's it's a road project in the city. I mean, I could be walking my dog and go and take some photos. <laughs> Just stood right over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right this side of the fence. I'm not allowed to use my phone. He's like, yeah, I see you using your phone, you're sacked. And I was just like, this is just crazy, you know what I mean? Yeah, I've, um, I've been there. I've been there. I'm just like, why Why are you not allowed to take a picture of this road? People are going to be driving on it next year when it's open. Uh, it's, just, it's just, you just like shake your head. You're just like, why? Why is this Why is this stuff like so strict? Why is it so banned? You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, I understand the whole phones and people driving equipment with phones in their hands and stuff like that. That's, that's bad. But the whole like photos being banned, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so annoying and frustrating how you can't share some, you know, some great images of uh, projects. So I suppose uh, they're just paranoid of accidents or failures on the project. People getting their phones out and then posting up on social media, but, but so that aspect then, but then you've seen cancels out all the good stuff. Well, but but the funny thing is that it still ends up on social media. Yeah, yeah, and it always will. Cause yeah. You know, everyone sort of, all these projects I've been on where phones are banned, everyone sort of takes their phone with them, just sort of sneakily in their bag or, you know, and a photo, photos will get out of certain fuck-ups and accidents. Yeah, um, there's whole pages with that on the internet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like the big one, as everyone else knows, is Mighty Mayhem. I mean, yeah. there's always stuff on there. Yeah, there's some crazy so, stuff on that page. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but I guess the photos that you can share, you go, you go to the dealerships quite a bit, right? Like Komatsu, Caterpillar, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, cause there's so much mining in Western Australia. I mean, there's a lot of gear kicking around all the, all the yards and dealerships here in Perth. And, you know, it's got to go for a drive around and you just, there's so much big stuff here at times being built up, ready for being trucked up north. And um, in particular, Komatsu, they've been very friendly and helpful for me coming to have a look around their their yard. I mean, um, yeah, thanks to them, I've, I've been 
been there on multiple occasions to check out some uh, really big stuff, you know, in particular the the, the Torno L2 350s. I mean, that's the largest wheeled loader in the world, and I've been to see four of those ones now because they're um, – Latorno is under the P&H brand, which is obviously under the Komatsu group. So they are now built and distributed by Komatsu here in Australia. So yeah, um, been to see those a few times. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah really appreciated of the opportunities just to get up close with those and um, yeah, get around the yard and have a uh, check them out. I remember I, I went to the Caterpillar. Um, dealer here as well when they were building up a 6090 hydraulic shovel. Wow. Now, obviously, as you're aware, that's the largest shovel in, in, uh, Caterpillar's range. So it was just awesome to see one of those being built up before it was shipped off to a gold mine. And I remember I was looking around it because, you know, obviously I have an interest in heavy machinery and, um, the, the, the 6090 is originally a, uh, an O&K machine yep. which was then sold to Tarex and then which then sold on to Brooks but they still use basically they still use the original sort of ONK design which is a pair of Cummins engines in the back <laughs> so I was looking around this 6090 and I was saying to the to the the Caterpillar shovel expert I was like Oh, so, you know, when are you going to get rid of the Cummins engines and uh, put the cat engines in, even though they're all painted up yellow? And he looked at me and he was just like, uh, how do you know they're Cummins engines? And I was like, well, you know, I just know these things. <laughs> he's like, looked at me again. He's like, are you sure you don't work for Komatsu or something like that? I mean, are you not a spy? I was like, no, <laughs> uh, I'm just an enthusiast and I just know my stuff. So that was pretty funny at times. It's amazing um, how how paranoid some of these equipment people are. Yeah, because I was there. My, he said, like, no, you can take some photos, you know, and I was there, and, the, like, the tour sort of come to an abrupt stop at that point. He was like, hang on a minute. You don't work for anyone else, do you? <laughs> I was like, a major <laughs> equipment manufacturer. I was like, no. I'm just an operator, but I just sort of know. He was like, well, how, how did you know they got Cummins engines in? But then he told me, you know, like, the cat engine is too big to fit in there. And um, they can't fit the cat engines in there until they have a major redesign of that chassis to accommodate the cat engine, which won't be for some time. So, you know, it's um, kind of unusual for a major cat product and still using a, a different engine. <laughs> now, I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about was online you share a lot about your scale models when did you when, oh, well, when, when did you get in all that yeah well I've started putting up a picture a few pictures of those now and there seems to be so many people like that those models yeah so I thought well yeah maybe I'll share a few more pictures I only started collecting um, maybe a couple of years ago um, and I initially only just wanted to get a few key models, you know, like the D11s or whatever, but it's just sort of spiraled out of control and anyone that collects models will agree that it's just a ridiculously addictive hobby, <laughs> which will send you broke. Oh yeah. But, um, 
yeah. So, yeah, I just started collecting a few, and then I, ha- I thought, you know, at the time where our, our toddler was getting very, um, how can I put it? He was just investigating everything in the house, so I had to upgrade my cabinet to <laughs> one with a padlock on the top. Um, so, yeah, and then, I don't know, it's hard to sort of explain why. For one, you buy it, people buy them, number two. But it's just, it's just nice to have a few in the cabinet there, and the cabinet is chock-a-block now, and, yeah, I cannot fit any more in there. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just cool to see them in the cabinet. I just, yeah, just enjoy them for some reason. Yeah, but you um, you go beyond collecting them because I've been seeing some that you have that are like identical replicas of exact machines with the decals and everything. So you'll have a picture of your scale model and then you'll have a yeah, picture of the actual so machine. Yeah, so that's the route I've sort of been going down recently is finding either one I've seen or one I've operated and I figured, right, I want one identical for that in my cabinet. So yeah. I've got a friend of mine who, uh, you know, who's also a keen model collector and then he's taken it to the next level where he's sort of developed all these um, water slide decals, which um, we could then apply then to the models um, we've collected. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it is, you know, hard to find the time now to um, do all these customizations to these models, but um, yeah, that's it's, it is pretty cool to have something identical which is out there working in the field. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's um, just another little aspect to make them more real, I guess. It's pretty slick. I I appreciate it. I'm like, <laughs> that's that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've I've only done the basics, you know, changed a few little things and put some decals on, but there's some guys which really go to town, you know, changing, building even those railings on the upper structure of the excavators and um, really changing so many aspects of the, of the models which you just buy off the shelf, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a slippery, expensive <laughs> hobby to get into because <laughs> uh, once you're in, you're just like, oh, wow, I want this, I want that. Oh wow! This has been released. Oh, I need to save up and get that. And it's it's not a not a cheap hobby, really. I've been fortunate to buy a lot of stuff um, secondhand, it, although it's in immaculate condition. It's just secondhand, and it's just come at a slightly reduced price. But um, it also it's a strange you know, model collectors. It's some some of them they collect all these models, yet they don't open them. They just keep them in the boxes, which is very it's strange as well. I can't sort of get my head around. <laughs> I want to buy something. I want to get it out straight away. Have it on the shelf. <laughs> I've seen I've seen people with like closets full of just models and boxes. I have seen that. Yeah. 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 So. Well. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool, but um, yeah, it's very expensive. I think I need to stop now because uh, <laughs> uh, for one, the cabinet's full. <laughs> uh, number two, it's just like oh god. Yeah, this is just turning into uh, a lot of money sat there on the shelves. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, if you there's a few pages out there on Facebook, and if you were to get on them and sort of look around, and some people are, you know, posting up pictures of their collections. I mean, what I've got is like a drop in the ocean to some other people. Some people have just spent a colossal amount over years to get these models, which are, you know, some of them are 
limited edition and they aren't made anymore. So this, some of the the value of those just increases just it's double and triple in price. It's crazy. Yeah, really, for just a piece of I mean, there's yeah. some people with, with rooms full of this stuff. Like um Shea Stutzman in Aspen, Colorado. I know he has a whole room full of scale models. Yeah, right, yeah. It's um I think yeah, quite a lot of operators are getting getting models now. Um yeah. it's just um I do get a lot of people asking me, Oh, where'd you get them from? But they're, they're pretty easy to find really. There's a lot on eBay and all these different little groups dedicated to models, they are around, but yeah, it's um any advice for people out there is just go just go go slowly, don't go go don't crazy with a credit card because it can be uh, very addictive. <laughs> well, I uh, this was a good chat. This is exactly what I was hoping it was going to be. Um, if they want to see your stuff, where do they find it? Um, yeah, I I'm only on Instagram. Um, I don't bother with all the others. Um, so yeah, I just got my Instagram page, which is uh, English Earth Mover. Um, it has changed its names a couple of years ago, but that was just because I was getting inundated with job requests from people all around the world. Um, but I've just sort of stuck with that name now. Yeah, um, it wasn't, it was yeah, like basically. Dirt Boss or something like that. And people were reaching yeah. out to you left and right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I put that up as a sort of a nickname. This is a <laughs> piss take, but a lot of people was just like, oh, this guy is a boss of a dirt <laughs> company. Let me get a job off him. And it was just like, oh my God, just out of control, you know? So, pretty funny. Yeah, I just called myself that. And, um, because, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm just from England and I'm moving a bit of dirt. So, here I am. But, um, yeah, so uh, thanks for the chat. Hopefully, I haven't rattled on too much about rubbish, but there you go. No, I think that people enjoy this. Well, yeah, I appreciate uh, some of your morning time. It's my evening since we're, uh, I think, 13 hours apart. We are, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a little cool here this morning. Um, coming into sort of winter time in Perth, but yeah, um, like I say, the toddler's off at daycare today, so it's the time to catch up on all those chores around the house and um, wait for him to come home. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I know you got, I know you got stuff to do. So thanks for, uh, thanks for sitting down and chatting. No, no problem at all. It's, um, yeah, it's good to chat. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, like I say, I'm on a great family roster now. So let's go back to work on Tuesday and I'll be on day shift then for the eight days and then, then another six off. So you can't go, can't get any better than that because, um, you know, previously I'd done all these three week aways and two weeks aways. And uh, I mean, after doing all those for years, you know, I just got sick of it, you know. And, yeah. And the opportunity come for me to work for a major miner, I just jumped at the chance just pretty to big. have more time with the family. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's, it's cool. You can do both. Yeah. 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 Well, I, um, I'll keep you updated on whenever this goes up and, uh, It'll it'll be in the next few weeks. It'll probably be like two or three weeks. But hopefully, I I know yeah. people will enjoy it. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully they will. Hopefully, get a few bit of an insight of what I went through to get over here. And um, yeah, um, 
I, I, you know, the hassle I've had with visas and what have you. Yeah. It's been a complete mission at times. But uh, I'm almost there now to permanent residency, almost there. But um, yeah, it's been, a, <laughs> it's been a nightmare. Yeah, I... I I, uh, I forget how fortunate I am to have been born in the United States. Uh, every time I'm running around the world with my passport and realizing how the lengths people go to get an American passport when they're not American, and it's it's no joke. Yeah. Hmm. Like I say, I I wanted to come to the U.S. to work um, all those years ago, but it was just it's just proven too difficult to get there. Right. Um, Once, whereas Australia. When COVID calms down, we'll have to get you out here for like a mine expo or something like that. Yeah, that's the plan. I'd love to get to mine expo and yeah. then uh, have a bit of a tour around the area. Um, I'd love to see some big scraper projects over in SoCal, maybe. Yeah. Because, um, like, they don't move dirt like that anywhere else in the world, I don't think. Like, they literally, it's crazy. I just love seeing the pictures over there and just bringing down the mountain basically it's just those big scraper trains it's just that's just crazy yeah there's a, um, a really big one about to start up um near la in the they, next few months and they have ridiculous size fleets as well i mean there's a few yeah. 657s kicking around here in perth but i mean they're not they're not that popular because they're i mean the most i've seen is say eight together oh man usually two Two are broken down. So, um, but like the, the fleets which those guys are running out there is just like mind-boggling. It's just, and with all the push cats as well, and the like the way they move dirt is completely different to here. With all those like I've seen, they've got those those pool boxes just for haul road maintenance, yeah, and just stuff like that. Like that that type of machinery doesn't exist over here. Uh, it's just not needed. Um, Especially around Perth, the ground conditions are very sandy, so the whole road's just rutted up all the time. Um, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to get out to Mine Expo, um, and one of those big shows out there to see that one day. Yeah, and hopefully, we can make it happen soon. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, seeing us. I'll have to uh, call into your office there. I heard you're um, getting a bar in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. We'll have you by. <laughs> call yeah. Call in for a couple of coal ones. Yeah, come on down. We'll take you to a maybe a coal mine while we're at it, and yeah, we'll show you a good time. Yeah, I have so, to go on that. Get that skid steer again. That's just that their um, skid that's steer. The thing starts. Yeah, I pick yeah. it up. Uh, pick it up next week. So we're going to be in business. That's pretty so, cool. You get in there. You're gonna <laughs> you get in a trailer behind that F truck to haul it around, or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna drive around. <laughs> yeah, I just drive people nuts with it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. So all yeah, right, man. it's pretty cool to hear that you're getting that. But yeah, no, um, obviously it's getting late for you now. So yeah, thanks for the chat and um, yeah, I'll let you get going. Yeah. Like I said, I'll let you know when it goes up and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Cheers, Aaron. Cool. See you. See you, mate. Okay. And that was episode 68 with the English earth mover, Mr. Michael. Thanks to Michael for his time and these Australian podcasts are a little more difficult because of the time change, but we want to cater to the global audience and grow the podcast as much as possible. And with that, we appreciate everybody sharing the podcast. If you can continue sharing it with your friends and family, 
that would be awesome because that's the way we're growing this thing. And with that, we'll see you on the next episode of Dirt Talk. Stay dirty. Stay dirty.